Well, it's time for our main Bible reading now, and we are picking things up in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 46. I'm going to read Genesis 46 and 47. That can be found on page 39 of the Church Bibles. So Genesis 46 verse 1 says this, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Bathsheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Bathsheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with them, with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sarid, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dina, altogether his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Ali, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heba, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpal, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becha, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppin, Hupin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Gani, Jezer, and Shilem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy.
He had set Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers, and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, why should we die before your eyes, for our money is gone? And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and flocks and herds and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, 
and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, and all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them, from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, a seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I found favour in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that in the next few minutes. Just to say that there is an outline of this morning's message that's in your service sheet that you've been handed or collected on your way in. Do make use of that as you see fit. And at the end of the message, there will be an opportunity to um, ask questions or about what's been uh, discussed or anything in the text that you'd like to know more about or any comments. So I mention that now so you can bear that in mind as we go through. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, as our creator, we thank you that your character is one of truthfulness, goodness, and sovereign rule. And therefore we pray, please, as we reflect on your revelation to us, that we would be those who listen intently, who trust your goodness, and who bow the knee to you, our sovereign ruler. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, we briefly considered a new book that David Bedil has written called uh, The God Desire. In the book, he argues that he has explained where religion comes from, and in particular where Christianity comes from. He claims that it comes from our desires. We desire God 
and then we make up what we desire. Now we considered uh, back then how all he's really managed to do is explain where idolatry comes from. He's right that the gods that we make up are not real. But that's not the whole picture. For in contrast to the gods we make up, there is the true and living God. But there's another aspect of the book that since come to my attention when I read an article about the book in the newspaper. An aspect that I think that is of further interest to us. So let me read you a short extract before making a few observations. So the article is written by um, a man called Theo Hobson, and he writes this. I want to say the same thing to David Bedil. In his new book, The God Desire, he seems to be trying to present himself as a more nuanced sort of atheist, whose Judaism allows him to understand the appeal of religion, even as he decides that he is too intellectually honest to believe. But his central thesis strikes me as the very opposite of nuanced. He argues, in line with generations of middle-brow atheists, that the desire to believe in God comes from the fear of death. We believers just can't cope with the unpalatable truth that oblivion awaits, so we perform all sorts of mental gymnastics in order to cling to the opposite possibility. I just don't think it's true. It's not true from my own experience, and it doesn't seem a major factor in other believers whose minds I have tried to peer into. Hobson questions Bedil's characterization of religion, that the desire to believe in God comes from the fear of death. Now, looking back at the book, I think it's a fair representation of Bedil's position. Bedil actually writes, who would not love a superhero dad who chases off death? Now, Hobson notes a certain irony to this. Padil wants to be more, a more nuanced atheist, yet his representation of religion is far from nuanced. Now, it's an interesting observation because when others talk about religion, and in particular Christianity, it's worth being aware that they may not be representing it truthfully. Now this is particularly sad when they are presenting it only to reject it. It's the idea of people rejecting Christianity today, but they do not know what it is that they are rejecting. It's one thing to know what Christianity is and then reject it. But it's tragic to say that you reject Christianity and not understand what it is that you're rejecting. We're approaching the end of our studies in the book of Genesis, and it provides an opportunity to reflect back 
on some of the things that we have learnt. A key text in the book has been Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. It's the point in the Bible when the promise of God is first given. Made to Abraham, he's promised by God to be given a land, to become a great nation, and to be the one through whom blessing, or indeed cursing, will come to the world. The terms of the promise are terms of creation. Just as Adam was blessed by God and given a garden to work, and told to multiply and extend its borders, so the promise of Abraham is a restatement of God's creation purpose. It's a promise that is what the rest of the Bible is about. Notice that the promise is not what was desired, but what was revealed. And since God will do what he has promised, there can be no safer place to put our confidence. All the elements of the promise are here for us in our passage this morning. So let's take a look and see how things are progressing. Genesis 46 begins with Israel setting out to journey to Egypt. Now, its significance is seen is that it brings them out of Canaan. This isn't just a going to Egypt, but a leaving of Canaan, the land of promise. That is to say that the move is theologically important. It brought Israel out of Canaan, the land of promise, to Egypt. It therefore raises that question, were the, was the Israelite migration to Egypt a bit of a mistake? Was Jacob's move to leave the promised land an error? Well, although Jacob is about to leave the land of promise, he's given the reassurance he needs that he will come back. Let's pick it up again at Genesis 46 and verse 3. 46 verse 3 says this, Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God tells Jacob that the family stay in Egypt is only going to be temporary. God will then bring the nation back and re-establish it in the land of promise. Now, although the movement in this whole section of Genesis is this move from Canaan to Egypt, there are other indications that this is not to be a permanent move. So if you flip to the end of our section, Genesis 47 verse 29, this is Jacob's last request to his son Joseph. Jacob is anticipating his death, and he says, beginning at the end of verse 29 of chapter 47, Do not bury me in Egypt, for when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. 
Jacob's not been sentimental in his old age. Jacob's confidence is in the promise of a land. Jacob's confidence in the promise of a land is reflected in his request to be buried not in Egypt, but alongside Abraham and Isaac. So that although this section ends with the anticipation of Jacob's death, there's an expectation of things yet to come, the return to the land of promise. A second element of the promise can be seen also in what God says to Jacob in chapter 46, verse 3 and 4. Let me read them again. 46, verse 3. I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. When God says to Jacob, I will make you into a great nation, he's restating the promise that he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. God promised promised Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. Now, the emphasis here in Genesis 46 is not just that God will establish Jacob as a great nation, but that he will do it not while they're in Canaan, but during their time in Egypt. Jacob is promised that in exile, the family will mushroom from the size of a small family into a huge nation. God will then bring that nation and re-establish it in the land of promise. Jacob's move to Egypt, therefore, helped to fulfil rather than frustrate the promise. This, of course, makes sense of why the names of the sons of Jacob are listed in the rest of the chapter. Jacob will not go down to Egypt alone. He heads down to Egypt with his family, with his sons. So you've got there the sons of Jacob by Leah in verses 8 to 15, then the sons of Jacob by Zilpah in verses 16 to 18, then the sons of Jacob by Rachel in 19 to 22, and the sons of Jacob by Bilhah in 23 to 25, each with their own offspring. And in verse 27, we're told how many members the list includes. Verse 27, And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who came into Egypt, were seventy. Well, are we to make anything of that number? Certainly, numbering 70 in total, Jacob and his family are well on the way, or at least the beginnings of, becoming a great nation. Furthermore, it also gives the impression that all Israel entered Egypt when Jacob's family went there. But the commentator, Dempster, makes an additional observation. And it becomes a contrast with what we see back in Genesis chapter 10, which is the so-called table of nations. If you recall, Genesis 10 sketches a map of the ancient world 
indicating the various ancestors of the nations and their lands. And it lists the nations that represent the then known international community. And if you count them up, there are 70 such nations. Now these 70 nations were eventually dispersed across the earth. And Dempster sees warrant to see in Genesis 46 Abraham's new humanity, a new table of nations. That this new nation is being called into being to restore the nations to the fulfilment of God's purpose. Well, it's in chapter 47, verse 7, that Jacob was given an audience with Pharaoh. 47, verse 7, Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, it's here that we learn that Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and we might expect it to be the other way around. After all, Pharaoh is the leader of the most powerful nation on the planet. Old Jacob, he's at the end of a painful and broken life. And yet the blessing does not come from Pharaoh, but from Jacob. Now, what we witness in Genesis 47 is very similar to what's already happened in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 and Genesis 30. So in Genesis 12, Pharaoh took Abraham's wife and as a result, God inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. In Genesis 20, Abimelech took Abraham's wife and as a result, God closed up every womb in Abimelech's household. In Genesis 30, Laban is blessed by having Jacob with him. Laban's livestock flourished under Jacob's care. But when Laban turns against Jacob, Laban's livestock are taken away from Laban and given to Jacob. What we've already seen then is that being blessed or being cursed by God depends on how you are relating to this particular family. Well, how then are we to understand the wealth that Pharaoh has? And Pharaoh does have considerable wealth. I mean, take a look. 47 verse 14, Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain that they were buying, and he brought it into Pharaoh's palace. And then verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. And then verse 26, Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. Are we not to see Pharaoh's wealth as the fruit of being blessed by Jacob? Pharaoh spared Joseph. He promoted Joseph to a position of authority in his empire. He sends a personal invitation to Joseph's family to settle him in Goshen. He permitted the giving of grain to them in Canaan in their time of need. 
and upon their arrival in Egypt, he extended to them a royal welcome. And Jacob's response to all these displays of compassion is to bless Pharaoh. The result of that blessing is the transference to Pharaoh of resources not previously his. The giver now becomes the receiver. The one who gave the land in verses 1 to 12 is in return given the land in verses 13 to 26. You know, it's significant that verses 1 to 12 come before 13 to 26. Now, there's a staggering irony here. Pharaoh is the leader of the most powerful nation on the planet. And yet the blessing does not come from him, but from Jacob, to whom the promise has been given. Jacob is at the end of a difficult life, and Pharaoh is a picture of power and majesty. But it will be Jacob who blesses Pharaoh. The hope of the world comes from Jacob and not from Pharaoh, because it was to Jacob that the promise was given. Well, we began with the idea of people rejecting Christianity today, but not know what it is that they are rejecting. You know, it's one thing to know what Christianity is and then reject it. But it's quite another to say you reject Christianity and not understand what it is you're rejecting. The deal thinks that religion comes from a fear of death. I mean, he's got that from somewhere. And I suspect that one of the reasons of speaking of Christianity as the antidote to a fear of death is that it is thought that people will understand it and that it will, in, in some sense, scratch where people itch. But if that is all we provide, we risk giving people no more than the expectation of life after death in some form or other. It seems to me that it's impossible to get the message of Christianity across, to get the gospel across, in any sort of richness, unless we get across Genesis 12, 1-3, unless we get across the promise of God to Abraham. We have to help people to make the leap back into the Bible storyline. So although at first the terms may not be initially familiar, in fact, it is the world in which we live and move and have our being. It's the world in which we are reconciled to our Creator. There is no other. And in this final phase of redemptive history, our task as Christians is to present the message of Christianity to others. People may still reject it, but they will at least do so knowingly. And of course, there is the other possibility, that in hearing the gospel, God will add to those he has already saved. 
well, we have a wonderful opportunity to be involved in that, in, our, in that work, in our next quiz night on Wednesday. So let me encourage, let's prepare ourselves by uh, reading chapter 3 of Reflection on Justice. Let's be inviting people. And we can all pray that God will use this event for the advance of his kingdom and to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege that you have given not only to know your plan for the world, but to make it known to others. And as we have learnt so much in the book of Genesis in these past weeks, uh, not least through the promise that you gave to Abraham, please would that be a motivation for us not only to continue to um, uh, pay attention to what you revealed to us, but to then pass it on to those who do not know that they might receive uh, the blessing that was promised to Abraham. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, I mentioned earlier that there would be a time for any questions, that time for comments. The time has now come. So... Sorry, it's me. Does everyone think I need to get back to my car? The ticket's going to run out soon. <laughs> All good? in which case final call otherwise oh we will leave it there we're going to sing a song uh, now uh, we can reflect on the power of the cross i would see the dawn <laughs>